Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. In preparation for our lesson this evening, I'll be reading from Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And what we find in here is the, the word is uh, living and powerful and knows our state of life. And now we'll read about his compassion, starting in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help time of need. Are you seated? Good job. Thank you. Would you open God's book, please, to John chapter 5, and if you want an outline of the sermon, you will have it by having that passage open on your lap. I want to do a, an expository sermon tonight that means just verse by verse go through about 17 verses, and I hope you will enjoy the study as much as I have. So one of the Anderson twins uh, came past me just before they left to go to camp today, and uh, he was dressed in an old T-shirt and uh, some knee shorts and some tennis shoes, I think without socks. And I said, hope you have a great time. He said, well, we will now. He said, I think there's rain in the forecast. And I thought, if, if I was going to go play in the mud, that's how I'd want to dress. And you're going to be fine, and they're going to have a great time. I grew up going to summer camp, different places where my father was preaching, where we lived. And uh, I have such great memories. I'm a real fan of summer camp, and I'm a real fan of Naoti. And so many of our people who are now all grown up and have families of their own have precious memories that they hold on to and from Naoti. And it's fun to look at old pictures of when these grown-ups were just kids. Aren't you thankful that our young people now get to enjoy that, even though it means that tonight we're missing 115 people? But uh, that's okay. That's okay. We're enjoying it with them. John chapter 5, the first 17 verses, have to do with a, a man who was severely diseased. And it, it's about the compassion of Jesus. And there's just a, a lot of things to pick up on that I want to discuss as we go through this. Healthcare is a big issue in the U.S. And when you talk about or even use the term Obamacare, it, it evokes a lot of emotions politically, right? And in Job chapter 2, you have Satan talking to God. And, and he was mocking and he said skin for skin. Yeah, all that a man has will he give for his life. Is that a true statement? Well, yeah. I mean, how many times have you been in a waiting room at a hospital 
because you had to have something seen about and the price was very high. What you were going to do is to pay a lot of money in addition to your insurance and you pay a lot of money for your insurance. And the other question is, what if it costs twice as much? Would you do it? Well, if what you're going through is pretty serious, the answer is, yeah, whatever you have, you would give. I mean, Satan was right about this, wasn't he? What would a man give in exchange for his life? The answer is that our health is very, very important to us, and, and we understand that. Well, that's a good context, I think, to set the table for where we're going to go in this passage. So we're in John chapter 5. Here's the first verse. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. This is a picture of it today. Now, you, you go visit Jerusalem, and you can go there, and what you'll find is still being excavated. They're still doing digs around here. But, but this is the place beside the Sheep Gate, and, and when they uncovered what you see, they discovered that there were indeed five different porches here, and they're distinguishable. And so there it is. Uh, Bethesda means, or the house of Bethesda means house of grace, house of mercy. In these lay a great multitude of sick people. So I want you to paint a picture in the screen of your imagination now of a multitude of people. Of course, there's a multitude of people. If people believe that coming to this place is going to heal them, well, that, that's, that's a big deal. I can, you just picture how many there are. I think it must have looked when it was time and the water stirred. We're going to talk about that. Can you picture Black Friday and Walmart and the thing opens up and people are just crazy? And then you have the, the newscasts after it's over about this woman who was hurt because somebody pulled her hair and they kicked her in the shin and they took her big screen TV that she found first. I think you had this, this massive crowd and when the water stirred, it was their understanding that they could jump in the water and they would be healed. These, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Now verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Let's go to the next slide. There you go, because we're talking about the compassion of Jesus. Now, I want you to look carefully at verse 4. And let me tell you that there's a, a great dispute over whether or not this really belongs in the text. And, and here's why. It's not in all the ancient manuscripts. And so when you look at your American Standard translation, this verse is omitted. Verse 4 isn't there. It isn't just that. And, and uh, let me start out before I give you this list, because I think it's kind of interesting to consider. But let's just begin by making the observation that if... If the Lord wants an angel to come and stir the water and thus heal people, he certainly can do that. There's nothing about that that we would say, no, he can't. Of course he could do that. The question is, did he? Is that what was going on? And when people are discussing this and disputing that that really happened, the first thing that they would say is, you know that it's not in some of the major manuscripts, and it, that's why it's not in the ASV, but not just that. It, it appears to be judged by the effect. It doesn't say, actually, in verse 4, that the people saw the angel. Apparently, what they did is to see the water stir, and they believed it was an angel. What happened here um, doesn't say that it occurred instantaneously. You go to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and, and you can Google this. 
and, and find out, are there therapeutic benefits to going to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and you see people sitting in that water? Yes, the answer is yes. It'll take care of some, well, it'll help some skin problems, eczema. Uh, maybe it will it'll help uh, relax muscles and maybe even thus help uh, some issues with the heart because that's such a calming effect in the high, uh, the hot uh, moving waters. But I can tell you what it's not going to do. It's not going to do anything instantaneously, right? So it doesn't say how long it would take to do it. What bothers me the most, I think, is verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Which is to say this, you've got a circumstance where the healthiest person is going to get the benefit of the water, whatever that is. The sickest person is not. The healthiest person is able to hop in, and it appears to me that the stirring of the water is not a long-term thing. It happens just for a few minutes, and then it's gone. If people, when people are discussing this and they're doubtful about whether this verse belongs, they will raise that. Another thing is that when Jesus heals him, what you'll find is that Jesus ignores the pool. He ignores the stirring of the water. He ignores any benefit that might or might not be there. And he just bypasses it, which is kind of interesting. You know, you'd ask the question, uh, if Jesus knew that this was an effort from God, if God was behind this, as was believed, the angel of the Lord was behind this, and it was really miraculous when people got the water, why would Jesus circumvent it to heal the man? Why wouldn't he just make sure that the man got in the water at the appropriate time and thus coordinate with God, the Father? And so those are interesting things. So let me conclude that just by saying that it's an interesting discussion. The verse is not in the ASV, and, and I don't know the answer. I can tell you this, whether the benefit was from an angel of heaven or the benefit of the water was like Hot Springs, Arkansas. Either way you slice it, it was from God. All right, so we can enjoy that. Now verse 5. And a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Now, you, you, you can't read that but grieve for this man. I mean, he, he's been crippled up. I don't, I don't know that he's been at the pool there hanging out for 38 years, but, but how, I mean, how hard is it to get somebody to come and, and put you in the water? I mean, so couldn't you just have a friend to come over and sit with you until the water stirs and then toss you into the water? Couldn't you do that? Or couldn't you have your family member? Couldn't you say to your brother or your cousin to say, come and sit with me for a few minutes because, you know, I suffer a lot. I could use the help. And, and so when the water stirs, you'll be there and just get me in. What if you, can you hire somebody? Just hire somebody to do that. Wouldn't be hard. I suppose he had no money. He had no friends. He had no family. What he had was suffering. That's it. And he's been doing this 38 years. Look at Proverbs chapter 13. Hope, verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. I think that's where this man was. Proverbs 18, the spirit of man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? How long? How long before you just gave up on this? This man is pitiful. Now verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew the original word for new means instantaneous. It means he immediately grasped the picture. I think he read him like a book. He knew that he already had been in that condition a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? 
that line always makes me smile because it seems... What do you think the expression on the man's face was when Jesus said, do you want to be made well? Well, Of course. Of course he wants to be made well. But it's not so crazy. Really, that's such a silly question if you think about since the cross. Isn't that what Jesus is asking everybody? I mean, because of our sin. Isn't that what he's asking? It's a shame, it's a shame it seems to me, that the answer so often to that is no, for various reasons that the devil is placed in the heart of people. And it's a shame to me that you think about this pool of Bethesda and you've got a multitude of people coming because they've got physical maladies and they want help. How come the same numbers aren't applicable to worshiping God or pursuing Christ or finding the spiritual salvation that is offered by our Lord from the cross? Just musing. Seven. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. Stop. The word put is fascinating to me. It doesn't mean what you think. Or what I would, I mean, you just read the English and you would think that it means to do what you do. You'd be very gentle and you would ease him down in the water. That's not what the word means. It means to pitch him in. It means, and in the uh, in Strong's lexicon, it means that it's a violent, intense thing. Throw me in is what that literally means. I don't have anybody to throw me in the water. Again, apparently the idea is that you've got to do it very fast. You've got to get in quick or you lose the opportunity and there's people ahead of you. I just need somebody to do it quick and throw me. There's no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. All right, now point number two. Let's talk about the power. Verse eight. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. In my Bible, I've underlined, Jesus said, because this gets real exciting to believers. Our world was created with the mouth, the word of God. Let there be light. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God, by the by his word, created everything we know around us. And you've got the same thing here. Jesus said something. I'm telling you, there's power there. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was on the Sabbath. Now, let's just make an observation here. And that is that there is some confusion about whether or not we have miracles today. And maybe some of it is semantics, but it's important to get because sometimes I think it's very confusing to people. It is true that God works today. Nobody in this room would deny that. But there's a difference in God working in natural ways and Him working miraculously. Compare the the faith healers today to what we see here with Jesus and this man at the pool of Bethesda because they're different. In the first place, this healing was instantaneous. No waiting around. And, and I, I, I must quickly say also it was compound. That is to say that it wasn't, it wasn't merely that he grew muscles. I mean, what's, what do you, picture those legs. 38 years, there's no muscle on those legs. They're just skin and bones. That's all they are. But even if you could suddenly, even if you could immediately put, put muscle to those legs, you don't have him walking. Come on. He's got months of therapy before he's able to look normal. It, it, it's just going to take a lot of time. Not so with this man. 
When Jesus said, arise, take up your bed and walk, he got up and walked. So you have a compound miracle here. Now, the third thing I want you to see is that, that there's no evidence of faith. In verse 13, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. It is true that sometimes in the scriptures, a miracle of healing would be uh, performed and, and faith would be attached to it. But it wasn't necessary. It wasn't essential for Jesus to heal somebody for them to have faith. In this case, you've got no faith. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. It makes you wonder why he was the one that was picked. Stop and think about that. It is true, of course, parenthetically, that this is about compassion. And you've got to love that. You've got to love that he comes to Bethesda. But this isn't just about compassion. In fact, it's not primarily about compassion. Was he compassionate? He was. But that's not the primary point here. If he was, I mean, if it was just about compassion, why wouldn't he heal the multitude? And how did he pick this guy? Why, why was this guy the one? And, and I don't know, you could say, well, perhaps he was the one who suffered the longest. Maybe so. I don't know. M- most grievously. Maybe he was the guy who, had, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's true. But he's certainly not the man with the most faith because he doesn't have any. He, he has none. I wonder if it's because this man is the most obvious to demonstrate that nothing here is faked. After all, the purpose of the miracle was to display the deity of Jesus Christ so that people would look at it. Unbelievers would look at it and say, wow, this this man is from heaven. He really is who he claims to be. That was the purpose. It was to confirm the word that he was preaching. That was the purpose. Well, which one would you pick? Which one would you get? And I can tell you, you'd, you'd come in there and that, there's a multitude of people in there. You'd pick the one that would, that would most obviously be the one that people would say, wow, I know this guy. I know this man. He's crippled. He's been crippled 38 years. He doesn't walk. And, and you know, you, you might add that there wasn't any money involved in this. And so that distinguishes it very often, distinguishes it very often from faith eaters today. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you have a chapter that's in between three chapters that all about spiritual gifts, 12, 13, and 14. The very middle one, chapter 13, at the end of the chapter, talks about the fact that the miraculous is going to cease. When would that be? When that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. The context is about miraculous knowledge. And now we know in part. Now we prophesy in part. They had and have the completed New Testament like you do. I know in part, I prophesy in part, but, but when that which is perfect or complete has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. We won't need these miraculous, the tongue speaking and the, the prophecy and all the miraculous forms of knowledge. No longer will that be necessary because what we'll have is the completed, finished, perfect New Testament. I know, I know that we don't have the miraculous today. And what's the difference between God working naturally and God working miraculously? What's the difference between providential care and miraculous care? And the answer is that both of them are works of God, but miraculous is supernatural. What you have in John chapter 5 is not natural. It is supernatural. If, if, you, if you took that man down into the water... And he came and every day for a year, he soaked in that water and he had therapy and massaging those muscles. And you had 
people who knew with today's technology, and you could build up those muscles. In a, in a few years, you got to where he could take a few steps. I don't know. I don't mean to exaggerate it one way or another. I, I think that you would say, that's a work of God. If he made progress, it was God's blessing. But if it's instantaneous, it's miraculous. I know that we don't have the miraculous healing today in the first place because 1 Corinthians 13 says that those gifts are going to be done away with. And I know, second place, that we do not have occurrences like you read about in John chapter 5 today. I was studying with a man in Salem, Virginia years ago. We lived there at the time. and The kids were small. And uh, I met him and I asked him if he wanted to study the Bible. And what I found very quickly is that I don't want to exaggerate about that. I think 95% of his religion was about the miraculous. That's just when he talked about Christ. I mean, he seldom talked about Christ, really. He talked about the Holy Spirit and, and miracles. And that's, it was just about miracles, miracles, miracles. And, and so I, I asked him some questions. I said, well, have you ever seen a miracle that a fourth grader couldn't fake? And he stopped and he thought, well, he's a very nice man. I didn't mean to insult him, of course. I, I just wanted him to think and I wanted to talk this out with him. And he thought, and he said, well, yeah. He said, I've heard about, about them. No, no, I, I mean, have you seen any? Uh, and he said, well, yes. He said, he said uh, our daughter, my wife and I have a, a young daughter, and she had a fever and at night, and we decided that the next morning we would we'd take her to the doctor. And I prayed about that, and in the morning we got up and her fever had broken. That was it. That was, you know, was that an act of God? Oh, yeah. There's no question about that. But it was not miraculous. It was, it was through God's natural working. I don't think that miraculous is necessarily so much more impressive than all that God does in our lives today. That's not the point. God works in our lives today. It's just that I don't want to deceive people into thinking that the miraculous still exists because you read John chapter 5, and I'm telling you that's not going to happen. That's not happening. And the reason it's not happening is that God didn't mean for it to, and 1 Corinthians 13 declares that. Now verse 10, and let's talk about the authority of Jesus. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. I love that logic, isn't that beautiful? It's childlike, it's simple. It's just right. It's just, it's just right. So, it's wrong. It's wrong for this man to do this. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath day. So they're going to raise this quarrel. Now, you remember in Exodus chapter 20, um, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then Jeremiah has some reference to, to the Sabbath day. And there's other places too. Jeremiah 17, 21, thus says the Lord, take heed yourselves, bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And so they're going to, that's what they're doing. They're raising this quarrel that Jesus has healed this man on the Sabbath day. And, and now this, it's just amusing to think that this amazing miracle has just been performed by the Son of God and is undeniable. And their quibble is about the fact that the man who's laid there all this time has picked up his bed on the Sabbath. It's pathetic. But his logic is good. And his answer was, He who made me whole said to me, Take up your bed and walk. A man who has 
the miraculous God-given ability to make me well also said, this is the right thing to do on the Sabbath day. And it's, it's very much like today. It's very much, if, if you accept that Jesus the Christ is the Son of God and that Jesus died on that cross to forgive you of your sins, then it is not hard for me to accept that, that I need to do what he said in order to obtain that forgiveness. I have no trouble with Mark 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be damned. I have no trouble with saying a person has to believe and be baptized to be saved because the man who died on that cross, who is God's son, is the one who said it. He sacrificed for me. He's the one. So let's just have a childlike faith and we say, yeah, that's it. Are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? Yeah, I am. But the one who just made me whole said, take up your bed and walk. I'm going to follow him. You see, that's it. I'm going to follow him. And that's why it was, that was what was meant. And the logic is undeniable. It's undeniable. When, when Saul was blind, going to the road to Damascus, what did, what did Jesus say to him? It's hard for you to kick against the, the pricks or the goads. And the goads surely include questions like this or statements or passages like this. How do you argue this? How do you argue as they are, that it's wrong to pick up your bed on the Sabbath day and ignore the fact that Jesus has just raised him from his disease. 13. And the one who was healed did not know who he was, who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man, did, I don't know what that means. I, it, it may be that, that the paralysis in his legs was somehow connected to some sinful life that he lived before. That would then logically follow. You stay away from the sin. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And therefore, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. What they missed is the fact Jesus knew the old law what they missed is the fact that, that works of mercy and necessity were not prohibited on the Sabbath. Works of commerce were prohibited. Some other things were prohibited. Jesus did nothing wrong. 17, but Jesus answered them, now listen closely, my father's been working until now and I've been working. Aren't you glad that God works on the Sabbath day? Aren't you glad? Because, in fact, you wouldn't exist five more minutes on the Sabbath day if he didn't. He's God. The very idea, the notion that, that God somehow violates his own law is, is ridiculous, and, and Jesus is God. It's God who, who makes the sun to rise. It's God at night on the Sabbath who brings out those stars. Isn't that something? I, I drove yesterday through the countryside for a few minutes and there you see those fields of corn. I don't know that I've ever seen stalks of corn that are greener than what I saw yesterday. They're deep, dark green. They're really rich and beautiful. I'm glad that God works on the Sabbath day. I'm breathing his air right now and I'm glad that yesterday I didn't have to go without it. And the water that he brings us, I've got, 
I've got the water so that I can drink and I can survive and I can live a good life, but it's because he works, at least in part, it's because he works on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, my father has been working until now, and I've been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And so, what you have here is a remarkable miracle. And it was done for a man who was worthy of our pity, but also a man who didn't believe that Jesus was anything. He had no idea who he was. He had no connection to him. And that was important for, for this miracle as we read about it tonight. It wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. And Jesus picked him out of that multitude of people and he healed him. And then tonight, all these years later, a couple of thousand years later, you and I are here and we're studying about this, and I hope it'll build your faith. And here's the thing that I want to end with is that in our lives as Christians, we, we have our own Bethesda. And it's, it's the hope that we have in Christ. And it's that Bethesda, it's that hope, that place of hope that sustains us. And when we or our loved ones are suffering, suffering grievously from some kind of disease or malady, and you've, you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. We need the place of hope. When we bury our dead, we, we need that place of hope. It's what sustains us. It's what we hold on to. When we follow, fall into the most bitter enigmas of our lives, I don't, I don't know the answer. I need to be able to rely on the one who has those answers. And aren't you thankful to be a Christian? I'm going to tell you something. All of my life, I'm going to follow the one who healed this man at the pool of Bethesda. I hope you will too. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at collie at westhuntsville.org.